Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor, U.S., also in Washington, D.C. I'm Alex Kruger, Managing Editor, International in London. It's Thursday, the 4th of August. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. Our delegation came here to send an unequivocal message. America stands with Taiwan. What did the visit achieve and how did Beijing respond? Then we turn to Kansas, where voters rejected a referendum that would have removed the right to an abortion from the state constitution. What does it mean for the future of abortion politics and abortion rights in America? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right. Well, if you tuned in last week, you know that the question of whether or not Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, would visit Taiwan was a live one. She did indeed visit. So let me do my little spiel. And then we're going to pepper Katie with questions about the visit. So spiel. Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House of Representatives, went ahead with her visit to Taiwan this week, ostensibly to show support to the Taiwanese, even against warnings from Beijing. So Katie, there, I mean, there were pretty stark warnings from Beijing. We even heard here in Washington that there were members of the administration who cautioned against her going. Why did she go ahead with this visit anyway, do you think? Because I, I don't really think it was just that Republicans said, well, you have to go now. Why did she, with all of the warnings, persist in doing this? I mean, I think an interesting kind of factual would be what would have happened if she had gone when she was originally planning to go in April. If she had just gone with very little notice, would we be where we are today? Um, I would argue probably not. That trip was postponed because she got COVID. And I think really what has made this into such a, a big issue beyond the fact itself of a House Speaker visiting Taiwan, which has happened before, Newt Gingrich visited in 1997, it has really been the run into this. So we have known for several weeks now that she was planning to make the trip. And in the interim, we have seen you know, these really repeated and increasingly strong warnings from the Chinese side who have warned explicitly about 
taking forceful measures. The Ministry of Defence has said the military will not sit idly by. Xi Jinping himself, in a conversation with Joe Biden, we don't know whether they specifically discussed Nancy Pelosi's visit, but we do know on the issue of Taiwan, she warned Joe Biden that he was playing with fire. So having made all of these explicit warnings, the difficulty for the Chinese side now is demonstrating that they were serious, that these were not just hollow threats that the US should feel free to ignore in the future. In terms of Pelosi's calculation herself, I mean, I think it's important to say she has long been, you know, for decades now, a very strong critic of China. You know, she she unfurled a banner in Tiananmen Square in 1991 in support of, of the protesters who had died there two years earlier. So she has long taken a very strong personal position on matters involving China. And I think also, you know, you are probably better positioned to talk about this, but there had become a real domestic political imperative here not to be seen to back down. If China issues strong threats, you know, to, to cancel the trip or postpone it, you know, she was getting real warnings here about that will be seen to be caving to Beijing. And I think, you know, ahead of the midterm elections, that would not be a particularly politically wise decision to take. But, I, you know, I, I don't think this is just performative. I think Pelosi really has demonstrated a long track record of speaking out strongly against China and supporting strongly Taiwan. Nevertheless, we will see a a strong response from Beijing in in the days and weeks to follow. To be slightly more cynical about it, I also think that she sees herself as like a defender of democracy in China. And I don't, I mean, I sort of go back and forward on this, not just with respect to China, but with respect to Russia and, and Central Eastern Europe, how helpful it is when individual American politicians see their own heroic role in history as opposed to what is the policy that makes the most sense at a given time. I also think that you're completely right that within U.S. domestic politics, she got to a place where it was like, well, you can't back down, which I think is profoundly unhelpful. There has to be space to say, okay, yes, she should be able to go ahead with the visit now, but China is being ridiculous and acting from a place of insecurity. And so we are going to postpone the visit while our autocratic friends throw a fit or something, right? Like some way to, to, to assess the situation, show your displeasure and still not potentially spark a military altercation. But that's not what happened. She went ahead with the visit. So my follow-ups are, what did the visit achieve, if anything? And you alluded to China's strong response. What are we going to see, do you think? So I think, I mean, there is domestic politics on all sides here in Beijing, in Washington, in Taipei. I think in terms, firstly, of what the visit achieved, I spoke to an analyst in in Taipei who said this really does represent a political victory for the DPP and particularly for Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen. It is important to the government there to show to their own constituents that they do have strong support from the United States. And I think particularly following the war in Ukraine, you know, it is important for the US to to show that it does stand strongly with Taiwan and to do everything that it can to deter any thoughts on on the Chinese side of a military intervention. So, you know, it is a short-term political victory for Tsai Ing-wen. There will likely be significant fallout, you know, both in terms of the, the military exercises that we are going to see, and we can certainly talk more about that, but also then more in terms of, you know, economic pressure. There will be gray zone tactics. We've already seen cyber attacks. The presidential office website went down as, as Nancy Pelosi's plane was was approaching Taipei. We'll see more of those type of tactics. We'll see more efforts to, to strip 
Taiwan's remaining diplomatic partners away from it. So, so there will be significant costs for the, from the Taiwan side, but I think ultimately the calculation is it is better to have this strong signal of US support. I think the test in terms of whether it actually achieves anything is whether it is then backed by significant substance. You know, we've had the symbolic gesture now. It is important that the US also provides support. You know, ahead of the visit, China banned imports of 100 Taiwanese products. It is staging military exercises in the waters around Taiwan in, in the weeks to come. It will be important for the US to back up this visit with support for the Taiwanese economy and with weapons sales, with you know supplying Taiwan with a, with the kind of arms that it needs to deter Beijing. So I think the visit on it by itself is an important symbolic gesture, but it's important that it's not only that and that it's backed up by significant substance. Right, which you don't want to do if you're the United States, and what the United States has sometimes done in its long history of forging these kinds of alliance and partnerships. You don't want to create a situation for symbolic reasons where the entity that you were supporting is now in worse place than it was because you did the symbolic thing and you're not providing them the tangible support. So you've given them a symbol and also put them in a harder spot and now you're not following through. Your point on deterrence, I think, is an excellent one. I was speaking to a friend yesterday who was like, well, the thing about deterrence is that you make a war likelier while trying to make a war less likely. It's one of the the paradoxes of foreign policy. So I would like to talk more about what we're going to see from China militarily, but also, you know, you're talking about economic bans. Like, what is the situation that this visit has created for Taiwan? And we should say that, as as you just said, many Taiwanese people were pleased with this visit and pleased that it went ahead. And we we sort of don't want to strip their agency from this discussion. But what's what is the situation that has been created for them? What will China do? So I think there's a short term and a longer term issue here. In the short term, I think the priority for China is to demonstrate that they were serious and to demonstrate, you know, they issued very strongly worded threats. It will be important to show that they are backed by something, you know, that this was not just empty rhetoric. So we are already seeing the Chinese military, the the People's Liberation Army positioning on on the coast opposite Taiwan. We have seen and they want us to see it. Xinhua, the Chinese state news agency, accompanied its release on this with a map of where these exercises will take place in six locations right around Taiwan. And some of those locations overlap with what Taiwan claims as its own territorial waters. So that is a significant step up from the military exercises that we've seen close to Taiwan before. And clearly there is an immediate risk that comes with operations like this of calibrating that wrong. You have two militaries, in the, you know, in, the, in this case, China and, and Taiwan operating very close together. Um, there, is, there is a risk of an incident between them that escalates. The, the broader imperative for the Chinese side is to show that they are serious not just about Pelosi's visit. I think Pelosi's visit is the proximate cause, but the, the broader background to this, and, and I've written about this on the website today, is the sense that Chinese officials feel the United States is undercutting its past stance on Taiwan. So to summarize, because we went into this in a lot of detail last week, but, but effectively the compromise arrangement that China and the United States came to back in the 1970s when they normalized diplomatic relations was on the US side, something called the One China Policy, which acknowledged that Beijing was the rightful government of China and it acknowledged China's position that Taiwan was part of China without endorsing that position. It said, I understand that is how you see it. 
China thinks that the US is undercutting that position, that its actions are now emboldening actions on Taiwan towards independence, and that it's undercutting the one China policy. So the Pelosi visit is a point at which for China to try to draw a line in the sand and to say this has gone too far. We have repeatedly warned you about the direction in which this is heading. So we need to do something that really makes policymakers in Washington wake up understand that we are really serious and that as far as we are concerned, you are interfering with a matter of our direct sovereignty. And it, it's particularly combustible because this is an issue that that she has really elevated. You know, he has really built up all of this nationalist support in China. He has really built himself as this very strong, strident leader who is reclaiming China's rightful place in the world and, and standing up to its adversaries and that China can never be humiliated again. So if he feels he risks humiliation, he needs to he needs to take a relatively strong stand. And, and it's particularly important right now, ahead of the 20th Party Congress in the autumn, when he wants to secure a third term in power and almost certainly will do, he can't afford to look weak, but he also doesn't want to spark a conflict. He needs to demonstrate both strength and competence in calibrating the response correctly here. And we all, and people on, 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 on Taiwan too, need to hope that he gets that calibration correctly. So if I can come in there, Katie, you mentioned the military exercises. Nancy Pelosi's plane has now left Taiwan. So does this just then subside in a few days and go back to being an underlying issue? What is the timeline ahead? You've mentioned the party congress, but beyond that, what are the other factors in play? Well, thank goodness you asked me that because I realized I said I, there's a short-term issue and then a long-term issue and then neglected ever to <laughs> ever to return to the second point. Um, so yeah, I think we will see a, a short-term you know, show of military force around Taiwan to demonstrate we are really serious. We are not messing around here. The longer-term issue for Beijing is that it, it does not want to lose Taiwan. You know, I think we can have various discussions and, and, you know, there are all sorts of positions in the China watching community on whether China is likely to attempt a, a military takeover of Taiwan. But even if you don't think that is likely, and I, and I am of the school that thinks that is very unlikely because it would be so catastrophically risky in the short term, the issue that you have is, is how do you move Taiwan back onto a trajectory where it is open to, you know, the, the idea on, on the Chinese side was to move towards a position as it had with Hong Kong of one country, two systems, where Taiwan could retain individual democratic freedoms, but still come back under the nominal leadership of Beijing. You know, we are seeing Taiwan move very steadily away from any interest in that, you know, opinion polling is showing, you know, not necessarily strong appetite for declaring independence, which is understood would be a red line from the Chinese side and would provoke a military response, although there is growing appetite for that. But there is really, really diminishing interest in in uniting with with the Chinese Communist Party or under the Chinese Communist Party in any way shape or form. In the short-term response here, that is going to be one factor that plays into the, the bigger, longer-term picture, is that by being so bombastic and by threatening Taiwan so openly, do you just compound that problem? Do you push Taiwan even further and even faster away? You know, do you encourage it to arm even more rapidly? You know, I, I'm reluctant to make too much of the comparison because, as people rightly point out, there are more differences than there are similarities. But, you know, this is somewhat the calculation that Putin was looking at with, with Ukraine and in trying to 
threaten Ukraine back into its orbit. He made sure it was never going to come back voluntarily. So that, that is part of the calculation on the Chinese side here is demonstrating strength, but also not then pushing Taiwan to the point where, you know, where it really does harden any prospect of, of, of Taiwan returning on a peaceful basis. And there, there are there are presidential elections in Taiwan too in 2024. And if what we see in the, the weeks and then months leading up to that election is a really strident campaign from Beijing, then that is only going to help the candidates who are taking a stronger line against Beijing there. So it, it's a really difficult balance to get right between the short-term signaling and the, and the long-term objectives here. Well, this is all a story that, Katie, we know you will continue covering. We will continue discussing it here on the World Review podcast. And we will put your story about Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in the show notes for this episode. But now we are going to Kansas. A referendum to remove the right to an abortion failed in Kansas on Tuesday. Kansas is a state that Donald Trump won handily in the past presidential election. So here's what happened. Basically, the state constitution of Kansas protects the right to an abortion. It was decided that a referendum would go to the voters, not to take away the right to an abortion, but to take away this element of the Constitution, thus handing the right over to the Republican-controlled state legislature. So you had some campaigning for this who said, well, it wasn't really taking away your abortion rights. It was just it was just giving it to the lawmakers. This is very similar to the manner in which the Dobbs decision, in which Roe v. Wade was overturned, was downplayed, and its consequences, consequences were downplayed by the anti-abortion right. If this is such a non-issue, why are we having a referendum on it? If this is such a non-issue, why did you spend decades trying to overturn Roe v. Wade? Of course, it's not a non-issue. We saw with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, this has had a seismic impact on American, not even political life, just life. Anyway, this referendum was not held during the November elections. It was held during the primary. Why does this matter? Kansas has a closed primary. That means that if you are an independent voter, you do not normally vote in the primary, although you can vote for ballot measures. So like for the referendum, but it's basically one might say that it appeared as though the people for this referendum were making a gamble that independent voters who normally do not turn out to the primary would not turn out to vote this down. If you support the right to an abortion, you really have to credit the organizers in the state of Kansas who worked across every political line, um, reached out to the center right, reached out to the right, reached out to independents, you know, really turned out, turned out the vote for this. This, this was it wasn't by a small margin. This this thing significantly failed. Why is it so important? Firstly, because it protects the right to an abortion in the state of Kansas. Secondly, because for both women in Kansas and, and people in states around in Kansas where abortion is basically banned, significant. Um, it also matters because this is really the first time since Roe was overturned that we had a referendum like this, right? This is the first time that voters got to say, oh, actually, this thing that you just pushed through the courts is not politically popular. This is not the will of the people. This is a minority position. The majority of us want to protect the right to an abortion. And that's in Kansas. There were some on Twitter.com yesterday who were like, well, Kansas still has a more moderate history than some other red states. Sure, fine. But I think it's really, this was a significant victory for the right to an abortion, for people who care about it, for the people who pushed for it. There were messages that went out from a right-wing firm that said, voting yes will protect a woman's right to choose. Like they really threw, you know, with the timing, with the messaging, they threw a lot at this and it still failed. How surprised were you by this result, Emily? I was genuinely surprised. I was very surprised. 
I think politics in America are so partisan and so ideological right now that to see a victory that was born out of a rejection of that was genuinely striking. And also I'm just so used to at this point seeing, seeing it work. You know what I mean? Like seeing the tricks and the cajoling and the lying and the, and the, like the sneaky timing. I'm so used to seeing it work to disadvantage people that to see it not work was very surprising and more than a little thrilling. Like it was, it was genuinely exciting to see like, oh, you really tried it and you failed. Did you stay up late to watch the result then? I was up, I mean, I was up watching the, the midterm results and when it, it came out pretty early, not from the official media outlets, but from some who, close election watchers who looked at the numbers and said, oh, wow, this, this thing failed. Because again, it was not a particularly close vote. One other thing I want to say on this, there are going to be other similar measures in states like Michigan, where actually it's the reverse. They're voting to amend the constitution to protect the right to an abortion. So this bodes well for abortion rights in other states. Um, not, I mean, not every state, obviously, but, but this suggests that if there is a measure that's explicitly about abortion in all but the most <laughs> fervent pockets of this country, people will support the right to an abortion. I would, however, caution against those who are like, this means that the Democrats are going to crush it in the midterms. There is a real difference between a referendum that is just about abortion rights and an election that's about everything. I think that we have seen in the past, and granted, I mean, maybe this is wrong because this was all pre, this was back in the world where we had Roe. We've seen Democrats try to be like, you have to vote for us because they're going to take abortion rights away. And it hasn't worked because people are worried about gas prices and they're worried about job numbers and they're worried about inflation. So I I think that, yes, this is an important message. Yes, Democrats should run on it. And and not just to win, but like because it's actually (laughs) it's a genuine threat that you should be communicating to your to your voters. I just don't think that it should be taken for granted in the same way that I, I think that it was wrong to take for granted that we would always have Roe. I think that it's a given that people will come out and vote first for abortion rights, I think is a mistake. That being said, and I, I absolutely hear you on the on the differences with the midterms. You've also written about the Inflation Reduction Act and, and Joe Manchin's perhaps somewhat surprising uh, support there. I mean, is there a cause for cautious optimism from the Democrats now to show that they can actually get legislation passed and that there is a capacity to organize and and affect, you know, a real difference at the ballot box. So just in case you have not been following this, the deal to which Katie is referring, the Build Back Better Act, which was a key part of Biden's domestic agenda, looked like it was left for dead. And then basically Joe Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer turned around and said, surprise, we have a secret deal. So they're working on getting that through. And it was after they secured Republican support for a different piece of legislation that Republicans had said would fail if Build Back Better had gone ahead. So now that that other legislation's through, they're back to what they're calling the Inflation Reduction Act, which is Build Back Better Mansion Redux. So I actually think this is this is like a genuinely good week in America for Democratic, like capital D Democratic politics, which is, again, surprising. Yeah, I think there's a case for cautious optimism. But I also think that what we're seeing is that cautious optimism is a reward for really hard work. Chuck Schumer and Manchin didn't stop negotiating on this, right? Like they, they didn't just walk away and say, well, I guess that's done. The organizers in Kansas did not say, well, I guess we're going to lose. It's a red state, or it's a Republican controlled state. 
you, you get to be an optimist when you work and when you try to communicate to people what your message is, what you're going to do for them, why it's important, um, and not just take voters' support as a given. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. With that, we are going to turn to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. You Ask Us. All right. Well, it was better than last week anyway. So our question is, what is the background to this weekend's dispute in Kosovo? 
Okay, Alex, as our resident Balkan expert, we are going to turn to you. And if you could just start with what this dispute in Kosovo was for listeners who are unfamiliar. So there was a dispute this weekend where there were roadblocks up in Kosovo and traffic between Kosovo and Serbia was interrupted. And this was because of a dispute over number plates. And in the Balkans, you can't tell by looking at somebody what ethnicity they are, but the number plate tells you where somebody comes from and it makes them very easily identifiable. So they are quite frequently a flashpoint. And this is what happened this weekend. In terms of the background, it depends on whether you want to go back to 1389 or not. There's an awful lot of history to, to get in. But let's go back to more recent history. So you had the war in 1999, where NATO bombed Kosovo and Serbia. Kosovo, which was a sort of semi-autonomous province of Serbia, broke away. Serbia has never recognised that but an awful lot of other countries have. And Kosovo has kind of continued on the road to becoming more and more a fully-fledged state, which Serbia absolutely opposes. There's a Serb minority in the north of Kosovo. They don't recognise the institutions of an independent Kosovo, including the institution that issues number plates. So they have number plates from Serbia. And what the Kosovo government said was, you can no longer use those. You know, if you're coming in from Serbia, you have to put on Kosovo-issued plates. There's also another issue with an entry document, which a similar measure had already been imposed by Serbia. So it's all very convoluted. That was when the roadblocks went up. That's when you had reports of gunfire. Police said nobody was injured, fortunately. The Serbian president went on national TV and gave an address saying nobody will dare to hurt us. Those are quite resonant words in the Balkans. That's not exactly what he said, but he was very clearly echoing some historic speeches about Serbs defending themselves. So it was looking, it was looking quite ominous. These new measures were supposed to come into force on the 1st of August. And the way they resolved this was by kicking the can down the road by a month. These new measures are going to come into force on the 1st of September. Now, will they find a way around it by then? I don't know. There was a similar dispute last year, in September of 2021. So this kind of thing does occur from time to time. But what has changed is the broader context. So you have this very fractious relationship between Kosovo and Serbia. But what has changed is Russia's war in Ukraine. Serbia and Russia are allies and they have been supporting each other. Russia has always refused to recognise Kosovo as an independent state as well. So there's a fear now that, you know, somehow this could become another theatre in Russia's war, that somehow that Kosovo, Serbia could be dragged in. There's still a peacekeeping force in Kosovo under a NATO mandate. And today there were reports that Ukraine actually had 40 peacekeepers in the Kosovo force, and it's withdrawn those 40. And you can see why that makes sense. Because the last thing you want is for Ukrainian peacekeepers to come into conflict, say, with Kosovo Serbs, and this is just, this is hugely hypothetical, but Kosovo Serbs set up roadblocks or there's some kind of altercation. Ukrainian peacekeepers go along and tell them to break it up. It turns into a fight very quickly. At that point, does Serbia say, 
Russia, these Ukrainians that you're fighting in Ukraine, are you going to let them do this to your ally? And Russia then gets drawn in. Um, it could snowball very, very quickly. And the problem is, you know, the, there's, there are so many underlying grievances that some some small incident like this can just become something very big and unpredictable. And, you know, there have been a lot of eyes on the Balkans since the war in Ukraine began. Alex, you have a great piece on this where you reference the guns of August. I mean, how concerned should we be as somebody who has followed so many crises over the years? How concerned should we be that this could be, you know, as I, as I think you were kind of alluding to there, that this this could spark a much wider, much more serious conflagration. It's the law of unintended consequences. Something stupid happens. You know, somebody is firing a gun into the air. It actually hits a person and it's the wrong person. You know, say it's it's a Russian envoy in Kosovo. They get hit. What happens then? Other parties get drawn in. It's terribly easy to, to reference events in Sarajevo in 1914 and to allude to the guns of August and all these really, really ominous precedents. And, I, you know, is there an immediate prospect of war? I don't think so. But it is that sense of alliances. Something happens, somebody gets drawn in, somebody gets drawn in on the other side, and it it builds up really, really quickly and unpredictably. And I think that's what we should be worried about. And that's why I think a lot of people were asking questions, how worried should we be? Because this came out of nowhere. And it will come back in a month. So let's see what happens then. We will put Alex's great piece in the show notes to this episode. We have to leave it there. So Alex, can you get us out of here? Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for an interview with Bonnie Glazer, the director of the Asia Programme at the German Marshall Fund of the United States on the situation in Taiwan. If you are a regular World Review listener and you have not already subscribed, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have one other favor to ask you. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a good review. It really does help. Our producers have been Mae Robson and Sophia Schmidt. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. 